But that leads us to the second blessing in these verses, that God not only increases and gives life, but he also sustains life. Look at verse 3. Every moving thing that liveth shall be meat for you. Even as the green herb have I given you all things. Genesis seems to be saying, doesn't it, that at the beginning, man survived pre-fall on herbs and grains and, and fruits. Genesis 1.29. Behold, I've given you every herb bearing seed which is upon the face of all the earth, and every tree in the which is their fruit of a tree yielding seed, to you it shall be for meat. But now, after the flood, it seems that God adds freedom for man to eat meat. Now, a lot of speculation is going on as to why that's so. We don't really know. Some people say it's because it's related to the effects of the flood, that there wasn't real healthy vegetation again, and that you needed stronger food, and God supplied the animals. Other people seem to connect it somehow with the fall coming, and therefore death resulting, and now therefore it was proper and right and acceptable for God to tolerate the killing of animals. Still others say that after the fall, man was greatly weakened, uh, especially after the flood, and, and, and the life of his years were reduced from 900 some years down to 100 or so, and he needed more to sustain his body. Well, we don't know the exact reasons, but whatever the reason was, we know that God now sanctions the eating of meat. Now, some people, of course, you know that, are, are vegetarians. And that's their matter of preference, of course. And they may have practical reasons for that preference, but they can't have theological reasons for it, because here God says, post-fall, directly, that I have given you every living thing to eat. God does make some exceptions. You can see that in verse 4. You must not eat anything alive, any animal alive or raw, with the life blood still in them. And by the way, that, that warning was confirmed also in the New Testament, in Acts 15, at the Synod of Jerusalem. Animals that are eaten for food must be killed, must be drained, and must be cooked. That's God's basic guidelines. Well, you see, some vegetarians, Christian vegetarians, respond by saying, yes, but we want to go back to the situation as it was in the garden. That was the perfect situation prior to sin. And we then want to follow those guidelines. But the problem with that argument is that we are not in the Garden of Eden situation now. We are in the post-flood situation, the post-fall situation, where we are commanded that we have the liberty to go out and to eat meat. So there's no biblical case for vegetarianism. And you find the examples of the saints as well. Shortly after that, God establishes his covenant with Abraham. Isaac, we read specifically of Isaac eating meat, don't we? Preparing venison. And we read also in the New Testament that Paul speaks against those who would forbid others from eating meat in 1 Timothy 4, verse 4. Well, there's much more involved here. In verses 3 through 6, what God is really getting at beyond the issue of vegetarianism is that man's life 
is superior to the life of animals. That's the key thought here. Man can kill an animal, but if an animal kills a man, the animal's life has to be taken. And if a man kills a man, the man's life has to be taken, because in the image of God created he man. Now, that doesn't mean that man can do with animals what he wants to do. It doesn't mean you can be cruel to animals. It doesn't mean you can just go out and hunt animals and kill them for sport. That's, of course, wrong. That's insulting God's creation. But lawful hunting for producing food for physical need is biblical. The whole world is made for man, God says, also in Psalm 8. Man has dominion over the fish of the sea, the fowls of the air, and the beasts of the earth. God uses animals to sustain the life of man. Now, in all of this, God not only points to the superiority of man over animals, because man is created in his image, but God is also showing his tenderness and his faithfulness. God is showing that even his sinful image bearer has his special care. And that in his tenderness, in his covenant-keeping tenderness, he who cares for our bodies, he who even numbers the hairs of our head so meticulously that he gives us our daily bread, day by day, meal by meal, this God will not forsake us. Also spiritually. And we are to use our daily physical blessings like meat and drink and clothing and shelter to appeal to God that he has not forsaken us and that he cannot forsake us if we are in Christ as a mother cannot forsake her child even more can the Lord not forsake his people. And so when we read the dignity with which God treats man in this passage, and the provision, the detailed provision with which God gives man to sustain his life, we ought to take from that, that this great life giver and life increaser and life sustainer is a covenant-keeping God who will sustain us in every way, also spiritually, for he has graven his people upon the palms of his hands. The old Puritans used to put it this way. We are to argue from the natural back to the spiritual and find comfort in God's treatment of us in daily needs to plead with his provision for spiritual blessings. But then, says our text, there's yet one more blessing. Not only life increased and life sustained, but also life protected. Now, God says in verses God says in verses 5 and 6, And surely your blood of your lives will I require. Then verse 6, Whoso sheddeth man's blood, by man shall his blood be shed, for in the image of God made he man. So God is saying here that man's blood is more valuable than animal's blood, not only, but the reason why is because man is made in the image of God. 
So man alone, of all creatures on the earth, is a rational, moral, and spiritual being. And in that sense, those senses, we are the image of God on earth. We image God on earth despite our sinfulness. Now we have lost the image of God in a narrower sense of knowledge, righteousness, and holiness. And we need to regain that in Christ. But still in the wider sense, man, though he's tainted and warped by sin, still images God. And so God says, the life of man must be particularly protected and preserved. Now this whole issue of the protection of human life involves many things. Again, we don't have time to go into all of them tonight. But I want to focus in closing tonight on just three of them. Three important areas. The first area is the area of human government. What God is doing in these verses is he's actually establishing a new set of conditions for man's life on earth. You remember when, he, when, when Cain killed Abel, God didn't kill Cain. God put a mark of protection on Cain's forehead. And at the end of Genesis 4, there's no suggestion that Lamech, who killed a young man, was punished before an earthly court. But now, when a new society is starting, post-flood, and God sees that they're all going to be sinners, to restrain evil, God establishes the death penalty, or what we call capital punishment, by means of magistrates, by means of government, as we read from Article 36 of the Belgian Confession. Now, that does not mean that I can go out if someone kills my friend, and go kill that person. No, that's heathenism. That's vengeance killing. But God is here condoning, establishing in human society, the authority through the court system for carrying out capital punishment in clear cases of murder. So, most of our forefathers said, here is the foundation of the establishment of human government. Principles that God would expound on and expand later in Leviticus 24, and then particularly in the New Testament in Romans 13. Now, there are people, of course, who say, well, but capital punishment is just murdering the murderer, and so you're adding sin to sin. God says no. God says, I have a right over life and death, and I declare that the ultimate crime against humanity, which is destroying my image, that's what you do when you kill someone, you destroy the image of God on earth, when that happens, the one who does that deserves to be destroyed. Because you're not just killing another person, you're killing someone who's the image of God. That's what the text says. Whoso sheddeth man's blood, by man shall his blood be shed for, or you could say because, in the image of God made he man. So why does God establish government? Martin Luther said, God establishes government and gives it the sword to hold wantonness in check, lest violence and other sins proceed without limit. 
So God here is establishing the rudiments of what would later become called the civil use of the law. To set up government figures and, and, and judges in the land and magistrates who are required to reward good and to punish evil. And that is all necessary because we live in a world in which the population is all fallen creatures. And so God ordains the powers that be, and he gives to the powers that be the sword. And he entrusts to those powers, even though they too will make mistakes, but he still entrusts to those powers a divinely conferred right of punishment, even the ultimate capital punishment. And what does that mean for us in a practical way? Well, it means that we must respect and obey the state. So long as the state does not command what God forbids or forbid what God commands. In all other cases, civil disobedience is unlawful. We don't choose the amount of taxes we pay. We don't choose some of the laws the government says. But we must obey unless they flagrantly violate the word of God. And God establishes that in principle already here, where he establishes the principle that there will be those who will implement the shedding of man's blood on grounds of justice. So we must willingly subject ourselves to all lawful authority in every sphere of life, not just in the civil court system, but that implies, of course, to all authority. Ultimately, you could extend this to the home. Children, you have to obey your parents, for it's right to the school, to the church, and to the state. So, we need to ask, what kind of citizens are we? Are we law-abiding citizens? Do we appreciate the blessing of government, despite government's shortcomings? Do we support the civil use of the law and capital punishment? Do we support the government wherever and whenever possible? Do we obey the laws of the land? Do we hold up before our children great respect for magistrates, for law, for authority? Would you like to deepen your understanding of Reformed Theology? Check out Reformed Systematic Theology, Volume 4, Church and Last Things by Dr. Joel Beakey and Paul Smalley. This book will lead you to explore key scripture topics from biblical, doctrinal, experiential, and practical perspectives. Order the culmination of Dr. Beakey's life's work at heritagebooks.org rst4. The second area we need to address is, of course, a more direct area, the area of murder itself. Whoso sheddeth man's blood, by man shall his blood be shed. God gives a blessing of protection, not only by giving us government, but he also gives us the blessing of protection by singling out murder and declaring that this demands capital punishment. And by so doing, you see, 
God's design, just like we heard this morning, same principle of discipline. God's design is to preserve the human race as a whole. So that the punishment, the discipline, is designed to restrain man. The only difference between what we heard this morning is we heard this morning in a church setting where there is repentance, there is instantaneous forgiveness. Because the church doesn't exercise the sword. Exercises Christian forgiveness. In society, you can be grateful to see a prisoner repent, but justice must be done. And there's not instantaneous release from prison, at least there shouldn't be, for crime, but there should be justice done. Now, of course, there are two areas today in which our entire society is blatantly, grossly guilty of this blessing that is designed for our protection of life in Genesis 9, verse 6. And the first area is, of course, you know it, abortion. In the womb, our society today kills living human beings. And the blood of all those millions of unborn babies is on our hands and ought to fill us with holy, righteous anger. David said, in sin did my mother conceive me, not an it, not a fetus, a person. And we read of Elizabeth's child, that a child leaped, not a fetus. was a fetus too, of course, but a child leaped in her womb. You see, to terminate the life of an unborn child is to terminate the life of a living person. Of course, the abortionists argue, yes, but that person is not independent. It cannot live without its mother. Well, a baby can't live without depending on someone either. That's no argument. Besides, that little child in the womb is also created in the image of God. It may not tamper with the image of God. And so, this shedding of human blood that is ordained by successive judicial branches in this country, actually authorizing it and condoning it, condoning the sin of murder, is one critical area that we ought to rise up as one man and alert the government and warn the government and warn the justices that they have no right to do this because this flagrantly, flagrantly violates the teachings of Scripture, and the sacredness of human life. And the second area, of course, is euthanasia. Life is sacred, indeed. The Bible says our times are in thy hands. For any authorized medical person to act as deity, to actively end another person's life, is a sin of tremendous magnitude. I'm not saying that people should always go on endlessly using artificial means where there's no reasonable hope of life being restored. There can come a time when you can use artificial means so long that you're actually fighting against God, fighting against His will. 
to take a person to eternity. We're not talking about that tonight. That's a whole other subject. But a whole other case that needs much greater depth. But we're talking about active euthanasia. But you might say, but have you ever seen someone really, really suffer who's dying? Yes, I have. And I've got two answers to that question. The first is, thanks be to God, there are other means available today to grant relief without terminating life. And the use of drugs can be used and should be used to help minimize that extreme pain. That too is God's gift. But don't take life in your own hands. And the second thing you need to remember is that through suffering, God's people have often greatly glorified God. John was told by what death, or Peter was told by what death he would glorify God. You see, through suffering on a deathbed, children of God can sometimes evidence more grace than ever before in their lives. Think of Swingley on the battlefield, in great pain, bleeding. Someone finds him and is ready to destroy him. And he says, what does it matter? You may kill my body, but you can't kill my soul. Well, that testimony has rung down through the ages, 500 years. You see, God can do great things on deathbeds. God can bring families around, God-fearing loved ones on deathbeds who are greatly suffering. And through their patience and hope and living testimony, they can glorify God in the furnace of suffering and be more used in their death than they were in their life. You see, this is the rule. Whoso sheddeth man's blood, by man shall his blood be shed, for in the image of God made he man. Well, the third and final area we need to address is the area of suicide. Surely your blood of your lives, your blood of your life, implies suicide also. And I know that's a sensitive subject to treat. Because in many of our families, somewhere in the past, there's been someone who's perhaps at least attempted suicide. But still we need to address it. This text is telling us, and it's a blessing for us, that we are not the authors of our own lives, and therefore we ought not be the enders of our own lives. God made us. Job says in Job 7, Is there not an appointed time unto man upon the earth? Are not his days like the days of a hireling? Job means it this way. If you hire someone, you have a set time that you hire them for a certain job. So God sets our days. He sets our boundaries. We cannot preempt God and try to determine the duration of our lives. We injure God's glory and his image when we do so. You see, the seed of atheism lies in every suicide attempt. The way of the godly is to be like Job, who longed for death at times, but who said, I will wait until my change 
comes. You remember, boys and girls, when the Philippian jailer drew out his sword. Remember what Paul said? He was ready to kill himself. And Paul said, do thyself no harm. Well, that ought to be the motto of every true Christian. Do thyself no harm. Don't harm your body. Don't harm your body with smoke. Don't harm your smoking. Don't harm your body with drugs. Don't harm your body with excessive alcohol. But also don't harm your body by even thinking about suicide. All these things can kill us. And we have no right to treat our bodies any wise else than as temples of the Holy Spirit. That's what we're called to to model. Every one of the six examples in the Bible of suicide were committed by ungodly people. Suicide is a dreadful dishonor to God. It's a burden upon loved ones. And it's a dreadful sin against yourself. One of the worst things about suicide is there's no time to repent most of the time afterward. We even have time to repent if you commit adultery, as terrible as it is. But suicide, there's no opportunity to repent. If there's anyone in our midst tonight who contemplates, who's severely depressed, And contemplate suicide. I warn you in love. Don't go through with it. But come to your pastors. Come to to other loved ones. Go get counseling. Get help of one kind or another. But don't. Don't even consider. This dreadful sin. Finally. I need to say one quick word before I close. There is implicit in this, friends, the danger and the warning also of spiritual suicide. God says in Ezekiel 33 that life is a great blessing. Turn ye, turn ye, for why will you die? God doesn't desire your death. You heard that this morning again. You hear it every week. God calls you to repent and to believe the gospel. There is a way out. When you go on impenitently and you go on unbelievingly and you go on your own way without God, you are daily in the process of committing I say it with reference. I say it with love. Spiritual suicide. Destroy your soul. Still tonight, God says to you, don't do that. Don't even contemplate it. But turn to me, sinner, and repent and believe the gospel and seek my face. Turn from your sin. Turn from your evil ways and turn to me, a gracious God, a life-giving God, A covenant-keeping God. A God who will give you life. A God who will sustain your life. A God who will protect your life. A God who will give you covenant blessings all your life. Yes, to all eternity. Thank you for listening to Doctrine for Life with Dr. Joel Beakey. If you were encouraged by this episode and would like to hear more, please consider subscribing and sharing with a friend. 
to enjoy more resources from the pen and pulpit of Dr. Beakey, please visit joelbeakey.org.